You don't want to use the blockchain unless there's actually some kind of dispute. All cooperative transactions in the world can exist off of a blockchain, and there's no reason to actually use a blockchain for them. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all doing? Big game tonight. I'm sorry I keep talking about football every week, but come on, it's massive. England are playing Denmark for an opportunity to get to the final of the Euro 2020 tournament. We've never been in a final my entire life. So I'm very excited about this. Keep your fingers crossed. Hopefully England will make it. I will be there. I will be cheering them on. So fingers crossed for that one. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I have an interview with Nadav Cohen to discuss some of the technical flaws with altcoins. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And first up today, we're kicking off with my newest sponsor, which is Revolut. Now, I've talked about this for quite some time. I had all my accounts closed by Lloyd's TSB, a bank I was with for 25 years. And I think it's because they don't like Bitcoin. So Revolut reached out to me and they said, Pete, we're not going to close your accounts. Come join us. And you know what? It could not have been easier to create an account and move everything over. And most importantly, they support Bitcoin and they are doing everything they can to make it easier for Bitcoiners to transfer money to exchanges. And now if you are interested in checking out Revolut, they are offering a $20 or £20 sign-up bonus to all new customers that complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up and you can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately to get that cash in your pocket. And do you know what I would do? would immediately convert that to Bitcoin. Now, this is a new relationship, and I am working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank which is Bitcoin-friendly. There is a lot to navigate here, but we are doing our very best. Now, if you do want to find out more, then please head over to revolut.com forward slash WBD to sign up. That is R-E-V-O-L-U-T.com forward slash WBD. And next up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of products for Bitcoiners. Now, with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I have been a customer of this product for over two years now, letting my Bitcoin work for me. Also with BlockFi, you can take out a Bitcoin-backed loan. You can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. And you know I've been talking about the BlockFi credit card. Well, it is out there. It is in the wild. They are offering 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. If you're not registered yet, please do get over there and get registered because they are starting to release this. Now, if you are interested in checking BlockFi out, I always recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, with a hardware wallet, you can take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And that first Nano S I bought back then, I am still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you are an Android phone user, you could also connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And also, we have Gemini, my exchange sponsor, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I have not sold a single sat with Gemini yet. I am only buying. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know what? I am yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. 
With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing. And that is all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Okay, so on to the show today, and this is a show I've been looking forward to make for quite some time. Today I have Nadav Cohen joining me on to discuss altcoins, and this is a conversation I approach every six months or so, because, you know what, my friends, they know me. They know me as the Bitcoin guy. They're always asking about Bitcoin, and from time to time, the conversation develops, and then they want to know about Ethereum or some other shitcoin. Now, I am Bitcoin only, and it's taken me a while to get there. I did trade orcs, I did get wrecked on the shitcoin route, so I know the temptations. And when my friends ask me, I can't always get into the technical side of why Ethereum may have some issues long term, why Bitcoin is better, and why they need to focus. So, to get into all that, I asked Nadav to come on the show. Now, I first met him on Clubhouse, where I heard him criticizing various altcoin protocols. I think it was Polkadot, where he basically took a guy to town. And uh, I was like, come on, Nadav, come on the show, explain this, explain this in an easy way for other people to understand. And you know what? He's good at making the technical argument for Bitcoin maximalism, which is something I sometimes struggle with. So in this one, I get all the questions over to him and he answers them amazingly well. So big thanks, Nadav. This is an episode about why Bitcoin is so important. So I think you're going to enjoy it. But of course, if you've got any questions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Send me anything, weird shit, normal shit, whatever. My email is open. Would love to hear from you. I do reply to everyone. Anyway, let's get on to the show. Let's get on to Nav. I hope you enjoy this and I'll speak to you all soon. Hi, Nadav. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. You doing well? You okay? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the rest of the world is no Miami, but it's, it's going all right. Yeah, I I, uh, I had a good time in Miami. I, um, it's a beautiful place. Like, yeah. Really awesome. Right, we've got uh, some things to go through. Let me tell you why I want to do this show. I do one of these about once a year because whenever I have friends or family or people reach out to me and they're like, you know, I want to know about Bitcoin, P, and then they ask me about other cryptocurrencies and I try to steer them away and then they try trying to convince me about why I'm wrong. And I always think I, I'm never good enough to technically explain it. I can explain you know, rationally why I think Bitcoin wins, why that's the most important cryptocurrency for the world. But I can't on a technical level. And, and I hear the arguments again and again, but I just feel like I want a show to uh, put in front of them. And I've heard you in some very eloquent debates on Clubhouse talking to other shitcoiners about you know, some of the issues they have. So you felt like the man to get on and talk about this. How do you feel about this? Uh, well, it's not what I normally consider my field of expertise, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, you you nailed it on Clubhouse for me. So I, I think it's definitely in your armory. Okay, so like I've got a methodology of how I want to approach this. Uh, so one of the things that I first explained to people about, I mean, I did it this morning, I explained how Bitcoin works, I start to talk about the blockchain. So can we? Can you start off by just explaining to me the problem that a blockchain solves? So a blockchain is a relatively new mechanism that we have for distributed and decentralized coordination between like a lot of people. So picture like everyone in the world uh, can come together, use the blockchain, and they will all come to 
the same conclusions about what the state of the blockchain is. So it, it's a uh, consensus mechanism. It's usually what it's called. Um, and for example, that can be used to have this public ledger of who has what uh, in terms of who has what Bitcoins. So if I wanted to send you a Bitcoin, I would uh, publish a transaction to this ledger and then over enough time, everyone would agree that I had sent that Bitcoin to you. Um, but a blockchain as a technology has some like fundamental trade-offs. So the thing that it solves is this big public coordination uh, that is hard to censor and isn't controlled by any small group of people. Um, but the trade-off is uh, primarily, I mean, there are a couple others, that it's somewhat slow. So, you know, to get everyone in the world to agree that I sent you this Bitcoin uh, should take like 10 to 30 minutes to an hour, depending on who you ask, um, for how much kind of, how, how sure you want to be that uh, this is final, so to speak. So it's not instant. We have kind of this time after which we achieve finality. It's kind of a rough consensus. Um, but that is kind of the problem that a blockchain solves. Can, can we talk about how it works? Because you know, I've talked to you before about how my listener base tends to be a range of people, but I do try and make it approachable for the absolute beginners, and there's always new people coming on board. So I'm going to do some pretty basic questions. You talked about consensus. So what is that? Yeah, so that's essentially everyone agreeing on what the current state of things is. So, um, you know, in theory, that doesn't just mean like who has what Bitcoin. It can also, you can put some minimal amount of like data on a blockchain and everyone will agree on, on the state of that as well. Um, but generally speaking, uh, because things are slow and uh, also the amount that you can put on a blockchain is um, somewhat limited, uh, in Bitcoin at least, we try to kind of keep it very minimal and kind of just what, what the state of Bitcoin is, so to speak. But so, by consensus, I just mean that everyone in the world like has the same picture of what Bitcoin uh, is owned by who. So the consensus is like a set of hard rules that the blockchain has to maintain. Yeah, cons the consensus rules are essentially a set of rules that if you follow, you'll come to the same conclusions as anyone else who follows those rules as well, uh, given enough time. But if you break one of the rules? Well, if, if uh, other people try to break the rules, they will not succeed. <laughs> so that's where all of the you know crypto part of cryptocurrency comes in, and everyone else will kind of rule against them. Uh, and if you're breaking the rules for yourself, no one else is going to believe you and you're just going to have a bad view of how things are. Well, we can probably give a picture of this. If we if we just roughly talk about, well, I say roughly, you, if you explain how a block is created and added to the blockchain, sure. then that, that will probably explain where the rules come into play. Yeah, so essentially... Uh, what happens, say, if I want to send you a Bitcoin, is I'll construct a transaction that points to some Bitcoin I already have on a previous block, you know, on the blockchain, and uh, proves that I own it using cryptography, using digital signatures. Um, so I sign it, 
And then uh, now this transaction, which says with my signature that I am spending these coins that already exist on a previous block, and I'm sending them to you. Uh, I take that transaction and I like tell everyone about it. And then they tell everyone else about it. And it's kind of this big gossip network where everyone gossips about my transaction until everyone knows about it. Um, then at some point, a, a block gets created by a miner um, who is doing a lot of work. Uh, and essentially, a block is just a list of these transactions. So it has my transaction that sends a Bitcoin to you. It has a bunch of other people in the world's transactions in it. Uh, and it's just this big list of transactions. And it also has a reference to the previous block, hence it's a blockchain, because um, each one references the previous one. Uh, and there are a couple other rules that need to be followed uh, to kind of ensure that this consensus happens. Um, but uh, once this once a valid block is created, which is essentially just means that a miner uh, has expended enough power, or, you know, all the miners in the world essentially have expended enough power and, um, you know, tried to just guess a bunch of random numbers until they found one that made the rules valid. Um, then that block is considered valid and they gossip about it to everyone else who gossips about it to everyone else. And then everyone eventually knows about this block. And now, so at this point, this transaction is like known about and considered to have like one confirmation. But in theory, someone else could create another block, like a competing one, uh, that say didn't have this transaction in it yet, um, that uh, went off of the same previous block. And then we would have to wait a bit longer uh, and to see which uh, of these two potential next blocks gets built on top of itself. So then, you know, everyone who's building blocks chooses one of them and uh, builds their next block on top of that. And then eventually, over enough time, uh, once you have a couple blocks built on top of you, uh, it's essentially impossible to change previous blocks because it requires all of the work not only to create a new block, but also to replace all of the old ones which would require you essentially, uh, in, in simple terms, to have like 51% or more than half of all of the world's mining power going towards Bitcoin, which is um, something infeasible. So one of the ways I explain this to people is to think about it like a, a skyscraper and every block is like a new floor. Mm. And what I always say to people is like the, the transactions that you've created exist within a floor but we kind of want to wait till like five or six new floors are built on top because the reality of going and you know taking all these floors down and rebuilding them is very unlikely. But if you only have one floor, if, if your transaction is in the top floor, it's kind of a little bit easier to dismantle that floor. Do you think that's a fair analogy? Yeah, that's a good analogy. And then, you know, once you have like uh, 10 floors or, you know, 100 floors even built on top of you, it's like that's never going to be changed. That's like very final. Um, yeah, and it's a different it's a it's a different method of payment people have to get used to. You know, if I was to pay you with my credit card, or bank transfer, or with a you know any form of like traditional payment, say PayPal, I always know kind of like once I've sent the payment, I'm just kind of like rest assured that it's done. Mm. But with this, you have to get through this idea of confirmations, and it's quite yeah. tricky for people to understand. But as long as you've got six confirmations, which is six new blocks built on top, we think you're pretty safe. Yeah, that's like super safe. Um, and also, you know, it's probably 
important to note that when you're using things like PayPal or your credit card, like they the, the user experience tells you the transaction has completed successfully, but it actually hasn't, and it does take quite a while. Um, and they just have built big intricate uh, systems to kind of manage the risk involved and deal with a certain amount of fraud. And in Bitcoin, like at this base layer that we're talking about, there is no such fraud. Like everything is actually, when we say that it's like final, like it's actually final and irreversible. Um, and there's no way to like back charge your credit chart or your credit card transaction or your PayPal transaction. Um, well, that's another interesting thing to talk about, which I also explain to people is I talk to them about when you've got money in the bank, it really is a system of IOUs. The only way you can ever actually have that money is if you withdraw it and you have cash. That is essentially final settlement by you taking that cash. But until you have that cash, everything's an IOU. And you can't be guaranteed the bank will make the transfers, and you can't be guaranteed that you'll always be able to access that money, certainly if you wanted to withdraw a large amount. And one of the things I say to people is, with Bitcoin, once that's been sent to you, that is final settlement. You take possession of that Bitcoin, and nobody can take it from you. That's right. Yeah. And we, you know, we imagine that there will be systems built on top of Bitcoin's kind of settlement layer where you'll have a similar kind of experience to using a PayPal or a, a credit card where, um, you know, it, there there's just a different layer built on top that eventually reaches final settlement. But uh, in the meantime, gives you something else that you can, you know, for most people will be good enough. Um, but with Bitcoin itself, that's right. It's like it's it's actually like where it ends. The story ends when um, the the confirmations are reached. Okay, so you mentioned that because of the nature of this, to be able to have a global system that every single person can essentially have a copy of the blockchain and all reach consensus and agreement, one of the trade-offs is that it has to be slow. So if I make a, a payment, if I buy something from a website in America, despite what you said, I, I have the belief once I've made the payment, the payment's done and it's confirmed, right? But for Bitcoin, we, we have to say, you know, you have to wait for that six confirmations. It can take up to an hour. That's essentially Bitcoin's biggest trade-off compared to traditional payment rails in that getting your head around that time. And we will talk about Lightning later. Can you cover why it is slow and why it's why that is necessary as part of the architecture of the blockchain? Yeah. So essentially, there are kind of two pieces to this. Uh, the first piece is that um, the blockchain has to remain relatively small if everyone is going to be having a copy of it. So if you imagine like anyone can throw anything in there at any time in the entire world, we're talking about like everyone having a copy, uh, not literally, but like similar in scale to like a local copy of like Google Drive on their computer. Like no, by Google Drive, I mean like Google Drive servers <laughs> uh, that store everyone's data. So that that isn't going to be feasible for everyone to be able to run a fully validating node in that case. Not everyone is going to be able to run all of the consensus rules and make sure that this is a big distributed system. Uh, without rulers. And one of the limitations here is that you have to keep things relatively small. You know, the goal in Bitcoin is that anyone should be able to run uh, a full node, so to speak, uh, on their own like personal computer. Um, that is currently how the state of things are. 
Um, and if we were to say uh, increase like block size or something so that there can just be more in there, um, which would reduce the time somewhat, uh, that would actually um, make things kind of worse in, in a lot of ways. Like it would kind of defeat, it would go counter to the problem blockchains are trying to solve, which is this big distributed decentralized system of consensus where um, there aren't a smaller set of people who are in control of that system. So that's kind of one of the more fundamental reasons why things are slow is because at the end of the day, blocks like block space has to be scarce because, uh, you know, at, like the amount of space on a personal computer is somewhat scarce compared to uh, what could be kind of demanded. And so if block space is scarce, uh, that kind of means that uh, we're going to have uh, some slowdowns um, with, with how long it could take to get your transaction confirmed. Um, the other piece is just with proof of work, how we are actually um, making things irreversible, building those floors uh, is not an instantaneous process. It actually requires like energy in the real world to be expended. It's not just like a number changing in a database. It's actually like, uh, you know, a bunch of power being run through miners and those miners are then doing a bunch of work in order to create valid blocks, which also takes time. So this is probably where it's a good place to discuss the trade-offs. One of the, you know, one of the first uh, other cryptocurrencies that people often ask me about is Ethereum. And they don't necessarily talk to me about Ethereum and preferring it because it's faster or cheaper. And certainly at some points this year, it's just not been cheaper. But they tend to talk about it being more flexible. You can do more with it. Smart contracts are really important. I want to get into some of that. But can we also talk about the trade-off that Ethereum has made with regards to their blockchain and why that is very different to Bitcoin? Yeah, so I think those are actually very similar or linked questions. So we have essentially, uh, you know, one of the differentiating things about Ethereum compared to Bitcoin is that you can, uh, the kind of things you do in transactions, the language of things you have to do in transactions is a lot more expressive. So you can do a lot more in a transaction, you can put a lot more data, you can do computations, you can do all sorts of operations on data, uh, and, and you can do a lot more than just like financial activity, uh, kind of natively inside of a transaction that goes into an Ethereum block. Uh, and on top of that, you know, it's uh, like you have a lot more happening. So it's not as slow as Bitcoin, which, as I mentioned, has kind of the corollary that uh, you have far fewer people able to run these um, fully validating nodes, uh, checking all of the rules to come to that same consensus without trusting anybody else. So the kind of normal flow of things, if you go and you're trying to start uh, you know, doing things with Ethereum is you go download uh, some kind of Ethereum wallet that uh, in the Bitcoin world, we would call it a light client in the sense that you are essentially to some degree trusting someone else to give you the correct view of the Ethereum blockchain. So you're not actually doing the validation yourself. And if you did want to do the validation yourself, it is quite tricky, especially in comparison to Bitcoin, to get uh 
you know, the entire Ethereum blockchain downloaded and validating all of those rules. And some people on their hardware are never even able to catch up to the current state, so they're never able to use it. Um, And that kind of incentivizes a lot of people to run their nodes on more centralized services like Amazon Web Services or something like this. Well, let's let's um, talk about that. Let's dig into that because I I run a Bitcoin node here. I've downloaded Bitcoin Core, took less than two days, and I had the entire blockchain. And mm-hmm. um, my node constantly keeps up to date. It's always downloading new blocks, and I'm always keeping up with the blockchain. And I did it all on a uh, on a um, these square Macs called? <laughs> I don't even know what it's called. What's a little square Mac unit? Mac Mini? I did it all on a Mac Mini. And it's all running and it's perfectly fine. If I wanted to do, do the same, because what is the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain is what, about getting closer to 400 gigabyte now? That's about right, yeah. But uh, if I wanted to do the same with Ethereum, do you know how much data I'd have to... Are we talking terabytes, aren't we? Yeah, we're talking terabytes. Um I don't know the exact number right now. And there's also kind of these distinctions between like, are you in an archival node or are you just a fully validating node or all these things? I mean, in Bitcoin, everyone runs the equivalent of, a, of an archival node, so to speak. Like you ran all the data and, and validated it. Um, or at least that's the default for what you run. Um, and and so, yeah, we're, we're talking like a lot more, and also, you know, there's a lot more computation that has to happen on that data as you are validating it. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's mostly just checking digital signatures um, and right. running other kinds of computation. And so, so yeah, I yeah, wouldn't so expect you to be able things? to do it on your Mac Mini. <laughs> well, I I, um, I tracked Eric Wall once on Twitter trying to create a, a Ethereum full node, and he was struggling. But you did talk about data centers, so. Are we to assume the majority, if not most, if not all, full archival Ethereum nodes are running out of data centers? Uh, certainly the majority. <laughs> uh, Do we know I, how I many there are? So I, I saw, I mean, it's kind of hard to get good numbers on these things because it is, at the end of the day, like, you know, you could run a node and not tell anyone about it kind of thing. Of course. But I, I, the estimates I've seen out there are that um, there's something on the order of a 1,000. Yeah, I think that's about right, uh, like fully validating Ethereum nodes. And I would assume a very large percentage of those are running on some kind of cloud computing service. Um, it is very hard for, for people to actually, especially everyday people. Like I, I talk to people who are like software engineers at small startups or companies that have trouble, you know, getting an up-to-date Ethereum node running, let alone like someone on their personal computer trying to do this thing. But that's not essentially a death knell for Ethereum. You know, sure. If, if, if we're trying to be balanced and objective and fair, it just means there's different trade-offs. Certainly, so, yeah. And and so that kind of brings us to like, what, what do you get for kind of the centralization uh, that's inherent? And what you get is that you can do a lot uh, more, say, natively on the actual blockchain. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, the reason I don't think that this trade-off is worth it is because uh, you can do most of those things uh, off-chain, so to speak. Like the, the only thing you need a blockchain for is uh, the thing for which blockchains are good at, which is this kind of final, distributed, uncensorable settlement. Um, and most of the time, 
because it's so easy to do so much on Ethereum, right? They have a, a language modeled after like JavaScript, which is one of the most widely used programming languages out there. Uh, it's it's very easy to just like write a bunch of smart contracts and, and put them on the blockchain and then it works. Um, but, you know, it's also super expensive to use because everyone's trying to do all of this stuff on the blockchain itself. Even if you make block space a little less scarce, it still is scarce. Um, and if everyone is trying to, to kind of use the blockchain so heavily at the same time, it just doesn't scale very well. And, you know, we can see all of these kinds of scaling troubles of trying to do everything on chain already on Ethereum. And Ethereum certainly does not have like worldwide adoption in the way that, um, you know, someone might hope that such a, a system would, would do in the future. Um, and so kind of even in Ethereum, they understand at this point that how you scale these things is with layer twos and going off chain and doing things off chain. And I think the the more you look into kind of how you scale these systems, the more you see that like at the end of the day, you don't really need a very, very completely expressive base layer. Um, and that that's not actually a trade-off really worth making. And another thing that, I find concerning about Ethereum is that if we look to Bitcoin, my biggest worry, concern for myself ever is a mistake I make uh, that leads me to do something stupid with my Bitcoin or to get hacked. And so, you know, I've set myself up a multi-sig solution, distributed my keys, and I feel pretty safe and comfortable with that. Uh, The only times I tend to hear about people losing their Bitcoin is from their own personal mistakes and trade-off for decisions they've made in holding their Bitcoin or trusting someone else. So they've got hacked by a scammer, they've given away their private keys, or they've messed their security up. But something I've noticed with Ethereum is that people can lose money because of a bad smart contract or a hacked smart contract, things that get locked up. And they could have the best security in the world, they could have... It could really, you know, put a lot of decent practicing practices in, but there are things that are out of their hands, which can lead to them losing some of their, you know, Ethereum or tokens. Yeah. So, because it's so, you know, everyone writes very extensive smart contracts, and at the end of the day, those are those contracts that code. Uh, its execution determines who has what, and if someone has a bug in their code, as always happens. Um, when when you're working with large code bases at scale, uh, then you end up with people losing money or you know funds being allocated to places that the users aren't expecting. Um, and so uh, a great website to kind of scroll through uh, that I found recently is called rect.news. And it kind of describes all of the quote-unquote hacks. Though they're not really, like, Ethereum is not being hacked. Ethereum is just... There are contracts on there that have been poorly written that can be exploited by people, uh, which is normally reported as a hack. Um, so it's not that someone's breaking cryptography or something like this and stealing funds from users. Like if you viewed the Ethereum blockchain from a super purist position of like code is law, as they used to say, um, then like this is just normal operation is <laughs> a bunch of people unexpectedly losing their funds because that's what was in the code. Um, because there were bugs in the code, uh, or at least unexpected features (laughs) in the code. 
that rec.news is interesting. I just had a quick look and there's like 16 events in May alone. It's nearly every, pretty much every two days there's been an event. Yeah, and which is, each of these things like, you know, there it's just like millions and millions mm. and millions of dollars worth of coins being stolen left and right all the time. Um, so that's, kind of, yeah, that's certainly another trade-off of having uh, an expressive base language, especially um, an expressive bla- base language uh, senses such as like solidity, which is um, not uh, as far as like programming language theory goes, like the most secure thing to write super money sensitive uh, code in. Like I would not uh, use a language like JavaScript to handle my money um, just as a programmer. But uh, yeah, I, I guess so. There's there's kind of that added uh, kind of design decision in Bitcoin. Not only is it restrictive to keep things small, right? We could have other ways of keeping things small. It's also super restrictive because we don't want there to be any foot guns, which is what we call like these. Uh, you know, you could you could picture like a shoe that has a, a gun pointing at your foot, and it's like, why would you design such a shoe? Like someone's obviously going to at some point pull that trigger and shoot themselves in the foot. Um, So we we try to avoid all foot guns and make it super minimal so that you really have to kind of work hard to mess up, so to speak. So I got asked a question today on Twitter of what a maxi is, and I tried to think about whether I am or not, because like sometimes I know I act like one, I can be a bit toxic, bit dismissive of other cryptocurrencies. But to be honest, I, I did reply honestly. I said, look, you know, I... My work is Bitcoin, and that's what I focus on. But I can see a time where I would potentially use Monero because I'm not particularly competent technically and trying to create a private transaction on Bitcoin and no tra- you know, trace what I've done. That would be very difficult to me. I, I would probably mess it up. Uh, but I know with Monero, I feel a li- little bit more comfortable creating such a transaction. So I can see scenarios where I would use Monero. I don't hold it. But I, I can see with that. And I also said, the thing about Ethereum is I don't like it. I don't understand it. There's a lot of things that I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of. But at the same time, large parts of the Bitcoin ecosystem benefit from stable coins. You know, there are people who use stable coins to trade in and out of Bitcoin. And, that you know, stable coins do benefit people around the world who want to hold a digital asset, but they don't want to hold Bitcoin because of volatility. So I kind of question myself saying, well, Am I being a hypocrite because I support the idea of stable coins, but I don't like Ethereum? You know, you can put Tron in that bracket as well. Um, so I kind of don't care if people want to you know, use Ethereum. It's their choice. I'm not happy with the trade-offs, and I don't really use uh, uh, stable coins anyway. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that there there appears to be some concerns with Ethereum long-term. One, the bloated blockchain and secondary, um, the move to something which we call proof of stake, which is a different consensus mechanism from proof of work, which is Bitcoin. I know I've put a lot out there in this last kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a ramp, but this last kind <laughs> of um, uh, point I've been making. Like, I guess what I'm asking you is, I'm not asking you to validate whether Ethereum is useful or not just because stablecoins are, but what is the long-term risks that Ethereum faces because of their trade-offs? And you know, how much concern is there around the uh, move to proof of stake? Yeah, 
So I guess first off, you're totally right that like, you know, bloated blockchain is is a big problem, especially um, seeing as earlier, I forgot to contextualize the numbers, like the 400-ish almost uh, gigabytes of the Bitcoin blockchain. That's like over a decade's worth of blockchain, right? And with Ethereum, we're actually talking on much less time and much, much, much more data. And so as time goes on, uh, you know, Ethereum is being used a lot more right now than like its first couple blocks when it was first created. Uh, so we should expect it to grow even more, even faster um, to some extent. And so certainly that is going to be an issue. Like if it's already an issue right now, uh, you shouldn't expect there to be a very large distributed network of fully validating nodes. Um, and you run into all the issues that kind of come with centralization when trying to, like, kind of write the problem blockchains are supposed to solve is that they're supposed to give you this big distributed decentralized network, which isn't necessarily a good in itself, but it does mean that, like, you know, a government can't come in and, like, censor your transaction easily or, uh, you know, all sorts of other kind of games that can be played with more centralized systems. Um, kind of control does not exist in some small group of people's hands. Uh, and that ne- isn't necessarily the case if you keep on making it uh, harder and harder for people to uh, actually check the rules. Actually, um, I've got a, just a question on that, because one of the things I'm aware of with Bitcoin is that it is censorship resistant. If I want to send Bitcoin to you, you know, it, it will get to you. I think the, the closest we've got to censorship of the Bitcoin uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is OFAC sanctioned addresses, which aren't actually censoring the blocks themselves and cent- sorry, censoring the addresses. They're just scaring people into sending transactions to them. But specifically yeah. on Ethereum, one of the things I've, I'm aware of is with some of the stable coins, if you look in the terms and conditions, they actually say they can blacklist addresses. So why is it possible for them to actually blacklist addresses in Ethereum when you can't do that on Bitcoin? Yeah, so actually, uh, one dirty secret of the smart contracting world is that many, or I I guess I don't know exactly how to qualify this, but there are plenty of smart contracts out there which kind of have upgrade mechanisms, meaning that like, you know, if a bug is found, they're going to want to swap off to some other a fixed contract. Uh, But one way of doing this is just like, you know, a certain number of people need to sign off. Essentially, it's some version of having admin keys for the smart contract. Um, And so you can imagine there being some mechanism by which some relatively small group of people can decide that some addresses just aren't allowed to use this contract, uh, which would essentially, you know, censor that activity. Um, So aside from Ethereum as a whole, which is kind of what we've been talking about, like individual projects and contracts on Ethereum themselves can very easily be fully centralized entities, which kind of begs the question, like, why would they be using Ethereum for this? Like, Mm. this is, you're you're making this trade-off where you're getting, like, slower, bloatier, harder-to-use database and you're getting nothing in return because you're just centralized at the end of the day. You're not using this decentralization very much. So I do think that there is kind of, um, you know, a lot of marketing that happens that is maybe another piece of the trade-off. Like that's what they actually get from this. 
Um, and it's not actually necessarily always technological innovation that is happening uh, behind a lot of projects. Yeah, so if you have those centralized keys, you might as well just build this on a traditional database, which would probably be cheaper, faster, more efficient. Yeah. Hmm. And you can even have a distributed database, but just with between the people who would have admin keys um, or, or something like this. You don't need everyone in the world to be validating your database if it's just a private project. Next up, I talked to Nadav more about Bitcoin versus altcoins. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And let's talk about Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks. There are far too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But if you have Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. You see, with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you can custody your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations that protects you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, I have been a customer for a year now, so if you've got any questions about this, you can hit me up on Twitter or you can drop me an email. I will answer all your questions about my experience with the product. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up, we have a sportsbet.io. Now, I keep talking about the Euros. I keep talking about England. Very excited about tonight's game, which I'm going to. And I have teamed up with sportsbet.io to join legends Brett Lee and Danielson in making predictions during the tournament. Now, we are in the business end. We are in the semifinals. I am going tonight, and I will have my picks announced very soon. Now, if you want a chance to win a prize, then you can go and compare my picks against the other two and see who is right. And right now, I am kicking their butts. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and click on the Clubhouse Legends Picks link. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash Clubhouse Legends Picks. And lastly, this week is Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, as regular listeners know, I'm always talking about UX, especially for new people coming in. Good UX makes Bitcoin easier for people to use. So when Exodus reached out to me, I had some time with the app. I played around with it. And you know what? They crushed the experience. So much so that I am happy to recommend Exodus to my friends and family, and you lot too. Now, the Exodus desktop wallet gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So if you want to check it out, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. So let's talk about proof of stake then, because, and we should probably talk about what proof of work is that Bitcoin uses yeah. uh, and, and why that's important and why that is a fair, what we believe as Bitcoin is the fairest way to run uh, the consensus. Yeah, so essentially how proof of work works is uh, miners have to, or a valid block, let's start there, is one which, you know, follows all of the like template rules, you know, it's a list of transactions, it references a previous block, it has been written down correctly, so to speak. Uh, but then there's this one extra rule, which is that uh, the hash of the block has to satisfy a certain constraint. Now, a hash, uh, you can think of it as just this like magic cryptographic function that uh, takes in some data as input and spits out a random number. 
That's how we model hash functions. So you can think of this as just like a pseudo random number associated with a piece of data. And uh, a block is only valid if its hash is, is like very small uh, as a number. Um, and so there's one spot on the block uh, that is just a number, and it, it doesn't have any rules associated with it. It's called the nonce, which is like a one-time use number. Um, and uh, all that you do with the nonce is if you're a miner and you're building one of these blocks, you know, you write down all the transactions and you reference the previous block and you do all the things you need to do. And then you start just guessing numbers to put in for this nonce. And then you run this hash function, uh, which spits out a seemingly random number. And then if the number isn't small enough, which it usually isn't, uh, then you try a different number and guess again, and you'll get a completely different random number. And you just keep doing this over and over and over again. And this is what is taking up the energy. You're computing a bunch of these hash functions. Computing a single hash function takes like milliseconds or less. It's like very, very fast. But because of how small the outcome needs to be uh, compared to what it could be, uh, and you know, we there's a uniform distribution. You know, it's as equal that you get any number, and there are way more big numbers than like very, very, very small numbers. Um, and so this is kind of the work that it takes: is uh, miners have to do this over and over and over and over again everywhere in the world, and on average, over the entire world you get one block that's correct every 10 minutes. And we actually adjust how small the hash needs to be to keep that uh, to keep that property, that we get about one block every 10 minutes. Um, no matter how much energy is being thrown at the Bitcoin network, we should be getting about one block every 10 minutes. Um, but what's really nice is once you have one of these valid blocks, someone found a nonce that works, then validating that the nonce works takes like a millisecond, right? You just like hash the data once, uh, as opposed to like some penta something. <laughs> like there, there's some crazy number of hashes that are actually computed uh, before you, you find the correct block. And then um, the reason that this gives you nice security and immutability, as we call it, which just means things don't change. So irreversibility, uh, kind of like we were talking about with the, the skyscraper analogy, uh, is that, uh, you know, once you've built that block, that took like the entire world some very large amount of energy uh, expenditure and work, essentially, uh, to, to compute. And now say you've got a couple more blocks built on top of it. Uh, now the consensus rules, like the rules you follow if you want to get to the same conclusion as everyone else, is you follow the chain that has the most work done on it. So, uh, you know, in simple terms, you can generally think of this as follow the longest blockchain. Um, so if someone else wants to reverse this transaction and, like, not include it in the blockchain, they would have to go back, like, say, three, six blocks or something, build a different block off of the, or, or go to the first block where right before your transaction was included, and then they'd have to build off of that their own block They'd have to expend uh, about as much energy as the entire world did um, in order to find a correct nonce that gives you a valid block. And then they'd have to do that again, like six times. And by the time they're able to do that, they have to do it many more times probably because you know more blocks have been added during this. So essentially, if you model this um, in simple terms, the like only way that this works is if you have more energy yourself 
than the rest of the world combined. Um, if you ha- are able to do more hashes than the rest of the world combined, eventually you'll catch up. Otherwise, you probably won't. Um, and so that is kind of where the security of Bitcoin comes from. So the energy expended, uh, kind of like if you could put a number on that, which many people have put many approximate numbers on that, that kind of is uh, equal or proportional to the security of the Bitcoin network. Um, proof of stake, uh, which is a something that Ethereum will be going to, but currently Ethereum still uses proof of work. Uh, there are lots of other blockchains, though, that already use proof of stake, is a separate system that kind of avoids work entirely um, and essentially uh, just tries to play this, I'll call it loosely a game, uh, in order to uh, decide like which blocks are valid and uh, the ordering of things and kind of all of these consensus issues. Um, and, and generally how it works, kind of has, as the name describes, is uh, you, uh, if you hold the coin for this blockchain, uh, you can stake that coin to kind of be entered into this lottery of some kind uh, in which, uh, or lottery or vote, depending on, there are lots of, proof of stake itself is not one thing like proof of work is. It's actually like somewhat broad and there's like delegated proof of stake and this other kind of proof of stake and each blockchain has its own variation. And one of the many documentation sites that I found fail to actually talk about it in terms of like an adversarial model. Like, you know, when you find documentation about proof of work, you'll hear about 51% attacks because that's how you model the security. It's like, what would it take to attack this system? Whereas most documentation out there does not talk about how you attack proof of stake. So it's kind of uh, a a less well-understood security model, if you will. Um, But you must have thought about it. I've, yeah, I've, I've spent some time. But actually what I found is that one of the best places to find critique of proof of stake that's actually looking at it critically in an adversarial model is look at a different proof of stakes project that discusses why they took those trade-offs. So if you know, you can, you can find some other blockchains documentation about why they followed different rules than Ethereum and they'll like critique the Ethereum proof of stake rules and then you'll go somewhere else and they'll critique their rules. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, a fun tidbit. But essentially, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you have kind of this game played between uh, stakeholders, so people who actually hold the token, um, where uh, by some mechanism, one person is chosen to create the next block and put it out there. And if they don't follow the rules, then there is some other game played where, in theory, what should happen is that their stake should be uh, either burnt or given to someone else, or in some way they should be punished um, for uh, cheating. But kind of the the problem here is that at the end of the day, if you actually do look at it adversarially, uh, you're you're looking at this like pseudo government structure where you have like maybe some checks and balances, but usually it's like a pretty straightforward thing. But where everyone is anonymous and you literally buy your votes, like votes are literally just money. So it's kind of like. You know, you, you take all the worst things about government and amplify them and get rid of a lot of the checks and balances and judicial system and all the rest of it. And it's just like some small group of people who aren't elected, but rather by their votes, 
get to decide what happens. Um, if you view it kind of from like a cynical model where you're like, what would it take to actually attack this system as opposed to what most documentation shows, which is what's the happy path? Like how, do, how does it work when no one's attacking the system? Uh, which is a very different story. Um, One of but, the other uh, and things. And then the sorry. an additional problem, sorry, with this is that you are then rewarded for your activity in staking, and so you kind of have this mm. self perpetuating system where, in in Bitcoin, you have to actually like expend real world resources in order to get this block reward. And you know, generally speaking, most miners, uh, you know, activity the, the amounts that they make is like you know they work at pretty thin margins whereas in a proof of stake model it really is like in some sense 100% margin yeah you 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 assuming that you don't get your stake destroyed or something like this you just uh the, the people who have more money get more money so to speak um which is familiar yeah well you say uh familiar because it feels a little bit like the system we're already living in. Um, you know, people often talk about the Cantillian effect with regards to the fiat money system, and it feels like proof of stake is a, is a repeat of this. Yeah, it certainly has some undesirable properties. And then the other thing is that I don't think it's actually... I, it tries, especially with its name and how it's presented, to kind of borrow the <laughs> the brand power of like proof of work. But in reality, it is like a very different system. It, it's it's I like to think of it more as a trust model than as like this big distributed consensus model. Like you could think of Bitcoin mining as a trust model, but there are just so many parties involved, uh, and and the barrier to entry is is low enough. Uh, like you know, in terms of if you have a competitive advantage, you'll be a fine miner, and it's also something that kind of you have to like. In, in Bitcoin upkeep, you can't like pass it down to your children, right? Whereas like, you know, you could imagine uh, someone who has a lot of stake passing it down to their children who then don't necessarily have any, like even if you're thinking about like, it starts out as the people who actually care about the system are the people holding the stake, but like no one's to say their children will care about this system and won't just abuse all of the power that they get from that. Um, so So that's kind of another consideration. But um, I lost my train of thought on what That's I was fine. Say. I mean, That's <laughs> <you know. laughs> oh, oh, right. I was just going to say proof of stake very much is kind of closer to uh, trusting a much more not really governmental game as opposed to Bitcoin, which is more just this like very simple, uh, well understood, uh, very distributed game. But I, I guess I do personally view proof of stake much closer to just a trust model that, you know, in theory, you could model on like a Bitcoin blockchain. If you're willing to trust that like uh, one, like 200 of 399 people, so the majority of these 399 people uh, are going to act correctly, uh, then you might as well just use like a very, very large multi-sig on Bitcoin and use them there instead of having this entire separate system that has all these games that they can play and be rewarded for cheating. Yeah. See, one of the things about Ethereum that I've struggled to see in the same way as maybe some Bitcoin maxis is when they refer to Ethereum as a scam because in some ways 
Ethereum is better than what we have as a current centralized banking and financial infrastructure. <laughs> There's certainly some things which are better than it. It's it's less centralized. There's you know certain things about it which are. I mean, I would say whilst it may not be trustless, it's still fairly permissionless. Whereas, yeah, and I think it also like I've been talking a lot about how you know in theory you can do all of these kinds of things in layer twos and Bitcoin, this is all like very cutting edge, you know, research that, you know, people are building these things out today. Um, You know, things like lightning already exist, but the next version of lightning is going to, you know, have even kind of more stuff you can do. And and as we move forward, uh, kind of, it's it's more that we know how to do these things, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if you're want to like make a startup and you want to do something, uh, with with Bitcoin, it could be significantly harder to do today than if you used something like Ethereum or some other blockchain. Um, and I guess I, I tend personally just, you know, because I'm more on the research side of things to, to think on the super long scope where I can see like where uh, things on Bitcoin are going and I'm not worried about there being some kind of lack of functionality. But I totally understand that like today it's like a lot more work because we haven't yet built out all of this. Uh, to do things on Bitcoin as opposed to someone else or, or somewhere else. Um, I actually like to use a skyscraper analogy for this as well, a different one, <laughs> where um, I think of like, you know, Bitcoin, we're trying to construct the super long term, you know, for the entire world to use system. And we're starting, you know, we want to build the skyscraper. So we've got to go down like super deep into the ground to build this foundation. And it's going to take a very, very long time, just like we're still kind of starting to come out of that underground section and start to build some floors on top. But in the meantime, you know, other people have built little four-story buildings that, like, you can already live in and you can, like, go be in there. But there's no way that you can then, like, take that thing, that foundation, and, like, build a skyscraper on top of it and have it Mm -hmm. be safe. Like, that's not how it's going to happen. So from, like, a long-term view, which I think is probably, like, the view to take if you're thinking about... uh, long-term things, I guess, you know, if, if you're, if you're looking to put your wealth into something or, uh, you know, use something for your country or something like this, you want to take that thing with the super like deep, deep foundation, even though like maybe it can't do everything today, it can do some like bare minimum, you know, financial transactions and, uh, some other interesting things on it today. You know that, like, you know, in the future, we're going to have this giant skyscraper. And if you had settled for the four-story building, you're just stuck with that. And it's not going to scale. Like, the entire city can't live in a four-story building. You need a much, much larger building for that. Well, that's quite interesting because uh, Ethereum 2 is in the works. And it looks like Bitcoin's nailed it in its kind of first iteration. There isn't a requirement for a massive re-architecture. Now, look, I know you'll say there are versions and there are versions <laughs> and you know, upgrades that we and have. And, upgrades, yeah. <laughs> but, but the, you know, they are upgrades, but but Ethereum 2 is essentially a re-architecture of, of the That's system. Right. Um, yeah, all, all of Bitcoin's upgrades to date have been backwards compatible. So. Yeah, and, and what I tend to think about is, going back to what I was saying previously with Ethereum, you know, in, in many ways, Ethereum is better from the centralized banking system we have now. But I just see it as, in terms of money, purely in terms of money and a way of storing wealth, I see it as significantly inferior to Bitcoin. Um, but there's also certain things about Bitcoin which I think are still inferior 
to using pounds and dollars, mainly volatility, you know, acceptance, et cetera, et cetera. Like Bitcoin hasn't solved everything just yet. As a long-term saving account, um, which is hedging against uh, the debasement of the currency, I think it's great. So I just don't see a use for Ethereum for me. But I, look, I, I've struggled to call it a scam because some people have found use cases. It's not for me. I've got no interest in it. And I think calling it a scam, actually, it kind of, if you if you call everything a scam, it kind of loses meaning for what a real scam is, like a one coin or, a, you know, a, you know, any kind of like, tr- like full on scam that's existed. I tend to say there are scams, there's silly ideas, and then there's Bitcoin. So I, that, that tends to be my thing. And I know that's going to, like, some Maxi's going to be like, you're a fucking idiot, blah, blah, blah. But it's just, that's that's the way I logically think through it. Because if if it's solving a problem for somebody, if they want to use it, then, you know, fine. They, somebody can transfer wealth through Ethereum and they can spend it. I might not like it, but it, it is serving a purpose. Um, but nothing you've said has made me want to own Ethereum or use it. We we could talk about lots of other different blockchains. We could talk about Polkadot and yada yada Chainlink, but I think generally they all you'll be repeating yourself. And there's a, a couple of other things I do want to talk to you about instead. Um so one of the things that Bitcoin solves is a mass distributed network, but traditionally it's not been great for small, fast transactions. Yet we do now have what is called the Lightning Network. <laughs> you know, I was using that in El Salvador. I was buying cups of coffee. You know, this is really the Bitcoin expanding to that point where it can be a transactional system because it has this transactional layer. So do you want to explain how, you know, you don't have to go into too much detail, but what the Lightning Network is and you know what this adds to Bitcoin? Sure. Um, so the Lightning Network, one way of thinking about it, there are many, uh, is the the problem that the blockchain solves is that it lets you uh, reach this kind of global distributed consensus uh, without any like centralized rule um, between peers that don't necessarily have to trust one another, right? It's kind of we have this nice uh, you know don't trust verify kind of ethos where uh, you don't have to trust the person who you're paying to act correctly or the person who's paying you, you can just verify all of that. Um, but kind of one of the the key insights behind the Lightning Network is you don't need to use the full power of the blockchain, right? This like super mega consensus building machine uh, to buy a cup of coffee, right? It's kind of like you you wouldn't go to the grocery store in a tank and be like, sell me groceries. Like, no, they want to sell you groceries. Like most financial activity that people experience day to day is like consensual and good for both parties and like something that people like don't need like violence or blockchains to enforce. And so what the Lightning Network lets you do is it lets you avoid using the blockchain unless there's actually a dispute of some kind. Um, So it essentially uses the blockchain as a settlement layer and only as a settlement layer. And then all of your other kind of transaction activity is just happening without going on the blockchain. And it's only peer-to-peer. It's not the entire world that needs to know about it. And it's very fast because you don't have to go on a blockchain. 
And um, it, but it's still kind of fully enforced by the blockchain in the sense that if ever there is a dispute between people, they can just actually go on the blockchain and have the rules of the blockchain kind of settle their dispute. Um, so it's in some sense, it's this trustless cooperation mechanism. So it's trustless because you're still backed with the Bitcoin blockchain, but it is a cooperation mechanism which allows you to avoid actually using the blockchain and having all of those downsides. Um, by just co-op, or it's uh, a very specific cooperation mechanism that uses a bunch of interesting cryptography and, and other things like this to kind of allow you to take these off-chain transactions, just like, you know, very quick, less than two seconds, scan a QR code, hit send, it's done kind of user experience where um, in like 99.9% of, you know, all of the cases that, You'll, you'll see in the world, like, that's the end of the story. And then only in, in cases where, like, someone is misbehaving do you actually have to use the power of the blockchain to punish them. Um, right. And, and this is kind of, like, the way I've described... I've described it this way because this kind of describes a lot of Layer 2 very broadly. It's not just the Lightning Network. Like, other things built on top of Bitcoin will have these properties that... You don't want to use the blockchain unless there's actually some kind of dispute. All cooperative transactions in the world can exist off of a blockchain, and there's no reason to actually use a blockchain for them. And Lightning is kind of the first iteration of this. It's primarily focused just on transactions, not on fancy contracts, which is kind of the stuff I'm working on, which will be going on Lightning in the future. But these days, you know, you can use Lightning to send Bitcoin around without actually having to use the Bitcoin blockchain directly. So we can buy coffee. You can buy coffee. All right. Killer I want to know a little bit. Killer app. I want to know <laughs> a little bit more about what you're working on in a moment. Just the last thing I wanted to touch on before before we get onto that is I do want to talk a little bit about Monero. Have you spent time looking at that enough for me to ask a couple of questions? Depends, Depends on the on questions. The questions. <laughs> but look, uh, I've always struggled to dislike Monero. I think it has this kind of like interesting origin story, like Bitcoin, we don't really know who created it. And I have used it in the past. And the reality is, as I said earlier in the call, now if there's certain transactions I would want to do, you know, back when I first bought Bit, you know, first used Bitcoin properly was to get cannabis oil for my mum for treatment. So if I wanted to do that now, I, I would be nervous using Bitcoin because I know now know that I'm probably KYC'd on all my coins and, and can be tracked and if I do mix them, then maybe there's certain places that won't. Except there's a lot I don't understand, and I just I'm very nervous that I would still be tracked, even if I thought I did everything right. I feel a little, little bit more confident using Monero. So, you know, despite what others think, I I could see a use case where I'd where I want to use it. Also, whenever I talk about Monero or the Monero shields or Monero fans, whatever you want to call them. They all jump down my neck and go, well, Bitcoin isn't fungible, Monero is fungible, yada, yada. So first thing I want to ask, can you just explain what fungibility is, why Bitcoin doesn't have it and why Monero does? And then my second question is, you know, are there any kind of critical flaws with Monero that I'm not aware of? Sure. So fungibility is the idea that you can kind of, if I have like, you know, one Bitcoin here and one Bitcoin here, like I, if I swapped those and now I had that other Bitcoin instead of this one, um, then I would be in the same place that I started. So you can think of like cash as fungible, right? If I have like a dollar bill in my hand and you have a dollar bill in your hand and we like swap, 
not, neither of our lives have, have really changed, uh, so to speak. Um, so the, the claim that Bitcoin is not fungible comes from this idea that different transaction outputs, which as we discussed earlier, like really what it means to have Bitcoin is that someone has sent it to you previously and you have not yet spent it. So that's an unspent transaction output. Uh, so that's the fast version of what's a UTXO. Um, but essentially the idea is that if you then had a different UTXO, like the thing about Bitcoin is you can go audit the entire history of each coin and they would have like two different histories. And, you know, the worry is like, what if someone does like blacklist an address and then like uh, that gets sent somewhere else and like somewhere in the history of this coin, there's a blacklisted address and somewhere in the history of this coin, there isn't or something like this. Um, and so the claim that Bitcoin isn't fungible kind of comes from this notion that Bitcoin is not particularly private about like coin history and things like this. Um, I think most people would, I, I don't know that most people would agree with that uh, even today, uh, but I think most people would agree that like, we are moving towards that not being an issue in Bitcoin, at the very least, if it isn't already an issue. Um, things like Taproot really improve, uh, which Taproot is uh, the recently locked in upgrade for Bitcoin, um, really improve things like fungibility, where uh, the the notion that you can like create like bad coins by like blacklisting addresses is becoming less and less actually enforceable and practical. It's kind of a, a, a dubious claim. You can execute things with, with Schnorr signatures like, um, sorry, with the new Bitcoin upgrade, like coin swaps where you can untraceably swap coins from one place to another. And also there are things like coin joins and, uh, you know, using lightning and other things like this, uh, which are off-chain, essentially to make it impossible to actually enforce a ban on a person, like in the real world. Um, so I think that uh, it's it's a much more nuanced conversation uh, in any direction, whether you're talking about Monero or Bitcoin. And uh, it's kind of disingenuous to just go with the one-liner. It's There's a little bit more to it. Uh, but certainly, I think you will find that um, among Bitcoiners, like, if any other coin had an even slightly soft spot within them, Monero would probably be that coin that they're like, okay, whatever, Monero can exist. <laughs> if they're like a Bitcoin maximalist or something like this. Um, and and I think the the key things to kind of consider are are the following. So I think... Right, the the use case, so to speak, especially today, like this is another thing where I think in the future, Bitcoin, the ability to use Bitcoin privately will be much easier than it is today. There will be tools that just work out of the box for if you want to specifically use Bitcoin privately. You know, there are trade-offs and some people might not want to use those tools, but uh, people who do want to won't have to be software engineers with like a PhD in how to analyze privacy on a blockchain to know if they're doing it correctly. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not by too much. Um, but yes, so uh, essentially, I think in the future, you know, maybe thing I'll, I'll reevaluate. But in the meantime, like, as I said, if you want to do certain kinds of things on Bitcoin today, like maybe, you know, if you, there, there's use cases for, for other things. 
Um, the the first thing to note is like that doesn't mean you should necessarily go put like all of your savings in this thing because right like if it's being used only because people want to use it for private transactions like that doesn't mean like that doesn't bode well as a store of value necessarily but maybe it's fine as a medium of exchange for like in and out kind of scenarios um at least to some extent so that's one thing to keep in mind another thing to keep in mind is that its goal is privacy like a key difference between monero and bitcoin is bitcoin um wants to be this like world currency that works for everyone and that you can store your value in. And because of that, we've made some design decisions, such as the one I mentioned previously, that all Bitcoin upgrades are backwards compatible, right? Like we're not going to go like pull the rug under and be like, you have to update, otherwise you don't have money kind of system. And, and you know, in some sense, you know, people talk about like, we're not allowed to like, go and, like, invalidate Satoshi's coins. That would be bad. Like, those will still have to be spendable in the future. Um, and Monero, on the other hand, and a lot of kind of blockchains that are out there that uh, kind of don't have the same goals as Bitcoin, they they take this other trade-off where we, we call it hard forking, but essentially it's, it's just a non-compatible, or sorry, non-backwards compatible upgrade to the network. So it's a, an upgrade where everyone has to change. So one of the kind of tenants in Monero is that everyone has to use the same feature set. Uh, so when they upgrade their privacy feature set, everyone has to use the new one. They can't partition like some users using version A, some users ver- using version B, because that's bad for privacy. Um, and so then that's kind of uh, the, the one of the bigger trade-offs, I would say, to consider is that you have to upgrade all the time and it's not the kind of thing that you can easily just like put something in it and then like walk away for a couple decades and then like come back to it. That might not be super trivial. Um, and so, so that's one thing to consider. Um, whereas, you know, Bitcoin takes kind of this opposite approach. And then the second thing to consider, uh, maybe on a longer time scale, which again, you know, maybe this is, uh, not actually an issue today, uh, but you know, in the future, the hope is that there will be potentially many more people using the kind of privacy tools that are easily available to people on Bitcoin than the total number of people using a project like Monero. And I'm not saying that that's just like I'm saying this could happen. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that this will no, happen. That makes sense. But um, right, the the goal of forcing everybody to update is so that you have as big of a, uh, an anonymity set as possible. But in Bitcoin, you know, we have a couple different, you know, we keep all of our old versions and all of all these things like this. But if we actually get this giant mass adoption that Bitcoin is built for, you might actually have a larger anonymity set over here on Bitcoin than you would using uh, kind of this other tech. But I personally haven't made up my mind on whether or not that is how it, it will play out. Maybe Monero will always be around for certain kinds of use cases. I don't picture it being a store of wealth, but I don't think exactly. anyone would be like, that is, like, that's not what it's built for. Anyway, so it's not a problem. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm there with Bitcoin as my store of wealth. There's, there's nothing that's come along that remotely challenges my thesis. Uh, and I will, I imagine, for quite a long time, perhaps even the rest of my life, be using Bitcoin as a store of wealth because I'd be surprised if something comes along which is a superior... Uh, technology for that. That but would be a nice surprise. <laughs> that would be that. Yeah, it's 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 the um, it's a lot about what Dan Hell talks about, where it's the immaculate 
conception of Bitcoin, which is something that's really hard to beat. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much there with Bitcoin. With someone like Monero, I, like I say, I would still use it as a uh, medium of exchange for certain things if I felt like I had a private transaction to do. The thing is, I don't. And I don't, that doesn't really come up for me. And some people say, well, you should care about every transaction being private. And I'm like, I understand, but just, you know, the, the trade-off of buying the coins, sending them, selling if I need, it's just a bit too much for me. I just can't be bothered. That's why, you know, even now, sometimes I still use PayPal because it's just easier than using Bitcoin. Sometimes I still use my bank. Like, I, I've accepted these trade-offs, but there is, I know certain scenarios where I may use Monero. I also know there'll be certain scenarios where someone may request Monero from me and and I'm okay with that. I'm absolutely fine with that. But uh, it's good to know that those trade-offs. Awesome. Well, listen, I think we've covered enough on this stuff. I've got more on my list, but this, I think, covers the main things I wanted people to get an understanding of. But I would love to hear about what you're working on, especially with smart contracts on Lightning. I probably won't understand anything you're talking about, but it sounds interesting. Sure. Um yeah, so the the big kind of project I'm working on has a big scary name, uh, which is discrete log contracts. Uh, we'll call them DLCs because none of those words are too important for anything I'm talking about. Um, but essentially, uh, they are a way of having uh, what are called oracle contracts on Bitcoin, where an oracle is just, uh, you can think of it as an entity which attests to something that happens in the real world and like brings it into the digital world. Um, so they're a trusted entity, uh, at least somewhat trusted, not necessarily like, I trust you with all of my wealth, but more like, I trust that uh, two of these three oracles will tell the truth. And if they don't, like, I guess I lose the small amount of money I put in this bet with my friend or something like this. Um, but essentially what DLCs let you do is they let you enter into fully kind of peer-to-peer no uh, third party involved in actual kind of setup or execution uh, contracts, uh, which uh, how who gets what Bitcoin just depends on something that happens in the real world. So you can imagine, uh, you know, there were plenty of people we were uh, testing things out with in Miami who were making small bets on the Logan Paul Mayweather fight. And uh, we had some oracles that were attesting to that event and, you know, people can pick an oracle, you know, find someone who wants to take the other side of the bet with them, set up one of these discrete log contracts or DLCs with uh, that person. And then uh, when the thing happens in the real world, that executes the actual contract on Bitcoin. Uh, And the nice property or like kind of the goals for DLCs are we want to use the blockchain as little as possible, right? So all the contract logic, all that stuff, that's all off-chain, fun cryptography stuff I do. Um, And the only thing you see on-chain is like uh, Bitcoin moving from one place to another. So it's only for the kind of transfer of value that we're using it for. Uh, And because of that, we're going to move these things onto Lightning in the future because Lightning also lets you do this transfer of value. But kind of at a high level, you know, you can picture using DLCs for... Things like prediction markets, uh, things like uh, kind of some financial derivatives markets. You know, a lot of people these days, uh, you know, talk about DeFi. This is kind of like Bitcoin DeFi in some sense. I know that that, uh, some people really don't like it when I call it that, but I'm Mm -hmm. calling it that anyway. But uh, essentially, it's just, uh, 
in my mind, like the reason I'm interested in DLCs is because I just think of it as like one of those foundational building blocks in this skyscraper for like most interesting contracts that move Bitcoin around are going to have to do with things in the real world. <laughs> so we're going to want some way of, of bringing those in. So it's kind of just this building block of um, allowing real world events to affect where Bitcoin goes on the Bitcoin blockchain. And none of this requires new blockchains. It's just like some fancy, cleverly constructed cryptography mixed with some other hard work that goes into it. Um, and yeah, and hopefully someday that goes on to Lightning along with lots of other things um, that you can do with Bitcoin off-chain that just uses Bitcoin as a settlement layer. Right. So are they good to go? Can you play with them? Are they in development? Uh, are they in testing? Uh, I, I would say that they're in like a, they're in alpha testing right now. So it's a, I, I wouldn't recommend non-technical people to go play with them, but if you are technical, um, then they are out there and you can play with them. And we're working, it's it's a, actually not just like uh, Shirdbits, the company that I, I work at. Uh, it's not just us, it's this big open source project. We've got uh, developers all over the world who contribute to this open source project. We're kind of trying to follow in Lightning's footsteps for building out uh, specification and multiple implementations and all of this kind of thing. Um, and uh, it's it's something that is out there and we're hoping to have a more stable version of it out there uh, kind of sometime, hopefully this year. I don't know if I should make that promise, but uh, it's it's relatively soon that we will have this out there packaged in an app that you can actually go play with, even if you're not a technical user. And um, there are also people already building things on top of DLCs. So the best example that comes to mind is uh, there's a company called Atomic Finance, um, and they have an app that I think is currently in like beta, so it's on like test flight on iOS uh, that some people are already playing around with. And it's just like an app on your phone that lets you do uh, covered call options. So kind of these um, relatively low-risk yield things uh, that you can do, or yield strategies, if you will, um, that you can just on your phone do some things, and then what's happening in the background is it like builds a bunch of DLCs for you. So our goal is to actually like have this be a building block that people who are building apps on top of this, like with Lightning, you don't need to know all of this complex stuff about how we use cryptography to settle things on chain and stuff like that. Like that's that's my work and everyone else can just build on top of that. Uh, and not just my work, but also this big open source community. Well, it sounds amazing. And uh, listen, I appreciate you coming on the show and explaining all this stuff and dumbing it down and making it easy for people to understand. <laughs> I hope I it, it, brought it, it low enough. I have a tendency to say words like discrete and log and contract. <laughs> well, I have a tendency to uh, not really understand a lot. So if I don't get it, I just make you explain it easier. No, you did a great job. I think it's going to be really useful to people. So appreciate you coming on and doing this. Look, if people want to follow you or follow your work, where can they do that? Yeah, so uh, I believe I'm Nadav underscore Cohen with a K on Twitter, I think. Let me double check that. But uh, as I go, I'm also, I'm on Clubhouse, as you know, a fair bit uh, explaining things to people there. And I got my Twitter handle correct. Um, I'm N. Cohen, most other places, N-K-O-H-E-N. 
I guess I don't know why I'd be showing my GitHub here, but there also. Um, <laughs> Maybe some I, people listening. <laughs> yeah, I, I have written quite a bit uh, in the Shared Bits blog about a lot of these things. I try to have some higher level posts and some more technical posts. So if you want like summaries of what discrete log contracts are or how Lightning works, we have like a Lightning 101 series uh, or how various other things in Bitcoin work, Taproot, the upgrade, or, you know, all sorts of stuff. We have a semi-technical, but some of the posts in there are just summaries and stuff. Uh, blog at sheredbits.com slash blog. That's S-U-R-E-D-B-I-T-S dot com slash blog. I have written a lot. <laughs> um, right, so if you want to follow my work, I usually write about it. All right, well, listen, I will... Uh... I will share that all out in the show notes. I appreciate you coming on again. That's twice now, and, and I won't be afraid yeah, to come and ask you fun. again. I really, <laughs> really appreciate it. And next time in Miami, which I think is going to be October, early October, for the Human Rights Foundation's Freedom Forum. Let's hang out, man. Let's catch up. Yeah, if I'm there, I'll hit you up. All right, nice one. Well, listen, take care, Nadav. Thanks for coming on, and speak to you soon. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what did you make of that? Isn't Nadav awesome? I think that's his second time on the show, and I would definitely have him back. I like to try and do a show like this every once in a while that compares the Bitcoin approach to other projects. Even if an altcoin has problems, I'm still weary of calling it an outright scam. Things like OneCoin put that into perspective for me. I think calling everything a scam, it kind of it kind of destroys the argument. It makes it difficult for... You know, it's like if you overuse something, it loses meaning. So there are things which I believe are scams. There are things that I believe are stupid. There are things that I believe are technically flawed. And then there's Bitcoin, which is God, which is crypto God, which is all we need. <laughs> I know some people are going to lose their shit over that. Anyway, I do think it's important to be critical. And Nadav makes some really good points about proof of stake. And for example, Ethereum is moving to second layers, as that is the approach that Bitcoin has been taking all along anyway. Now, you can't have a discussion like this without getting into some of the weeds of how these protocols work. And I think Nadav did an amazing job of making it approachable. So I hope even if you aren't technical like me, you can follow along. Now, if you've got any questions about this, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And you can also jump into my Telegram group. As ever, I always ask for you, do one thing for me. But today, I'm not going to ask you to leave me a review. I'm just asking for you to say your prayers, cross your fingers, we want England to win tonight. We want them to beat Denmark. We want them in the final. Do it for me. Do it because you love me. Do it because you love Bitcoin. Do it because you love England. Actually, a lot of you probably hate England, probably hate me, probably don't give a shit. But either way, come on, just cross your fingers. It's coming home. It really is. <laughs> anyway, listen, love you all. Uh, tomorrow I will either be in a great mood or a shitty mood and avoiding Twitter. Fingers crossed it's a great mood. Anyway, have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday. 